Good morning. As Matthew said, I will be reading from the book of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. How many of you were alive in 1999? <laughs> okay, most of us, good. Quick check, because I want to read to you the very beginning of a lead story in Time Magazine from December 6, 1999, uh, that opened with the following summary from a gentleman by the name of Reynolds Price, professor of English at Duke University. The memory of any stretch of years eventually resolves to a list of names. And one of the useful ways of recalling the past two millenniums is by listing the people who acquired great power. Muhammad, Catherine the Great, Marx, Gandhi, Hitler, Roosevelt, Stalin, Mao come quickly to mind. There's no question that each of these figures changed the lives of millions and evoked responses from worship through hatred. It would require much exotic calculation, however, to deny that the single most powerful figure, not merely in these two millenniums, but in all human history, has been Jesus of Nazareth. Why do you think that is? It's not a Christian writing, by the way. Secular journalist professor. Why would he say that? 
Well, if you read the entire long article, he never really answers the question. But friends, that is exactly the question that this book answers. The Gospel of John. And the answer is that in Jesus Christ, God gave us the gift of himself. That's the answer. Jesus is the Son of God incarnate. God in human flesh. And his conception in Mary's womb, friend, is the greatest gift this world has ever received. Because the birth of Christ meant the dawn of the new age, that the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, that the moment that the Lord himself made good on a centuries-old promise to reverse the fortunes of mankind and to intervene and act on behalf of all who languish under the curse of sin. And so, well, did the angel say to the shepherds in Luke 2.10, behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And I say that wondering, wondering if, if there's a good gift that maybe, maybe right now or maybe this whole summer or maybe for years, a good gift you've been waiting for God to give you. Maybe it's something you've been praying for for decades. Maybe you've grown skeptical that after years of waiting or asking, God is able or willing to give you anything good at all. Maybe you can't shake the, the creeping suspicion that God is just like every other person in your life who has perpetually let you down. Well, friend, the historical fact of the incarnation reminds us that, that the question is not whether God will give us what is good, but whether or not we will see and savor Jesus Christ as the exceedingly great, life-giving, all-satisfying treasure that he is. That's the question. And explaining that is the entire purpose of this gospel. John 20, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. I, I don't know where you've come from or what's happened in your life or what's going on in your heart right now, or what you've done that you hope nobody, and especially a pastor, ever figures out that you've been a part of. But I do know this, friend, there is life for you right now in King Jesus. Right now. And experiencing life in him starts with understanding who he is. You'll never experience life in Jesus unless you can answer the question correctly, who is Jesus. And that's what makes John helpful. And, and we began our study of this gospel 
by lingering on the first 18 verses because in them, John summarizes all the answers he's going to give in this whole gospel to that question. Who is Jesus? He wants us to know Jesus and trust Jesus and experience abundant life in Jesus. And so he introduces Jesus. It's kind of writing a bio here. He introduces him in chapter one as the word, the word, or the definitive self-expression of God. And John explains in verses one to 13 that Jesus is, the word is, eternal. The word is one with God. The word is God. The word is the agent of creation. The word is the source of life. The word is the light of men. The word was authenticated by God's appointed witness. The word was rejected by those who should have received him. And the word grants the gift of adoption to all who believe in him. It's the first two sermons I preached from this reviewed in 20 seconds. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) I'm trying. (laughs) But in the last portion of the prologue, John keeps right on answering that question. Who is Jesus? So I'll let you decide if you want to think of the points I'll make this morning as points number 10, 11, and 12, (laughs) or as points one, two, and three. But because it's been a long time since we've been here, I'm going to go with one, two, and three. So who is Jesus? Verses 14 to 18, here are John's final three answers. First, the word of God is God in human flesh. The word is God in human flesh. Look at verse 14. I think this verse opens, this is crazy, with probably the most stunning statement in the entire chapter. If you really slow down to think about it. And the word became flesh. The word became flesh. And and it is at precisely this point, friends, that that we find ourselves peering, as it were, into one of the great unfathomable mysteries of the universe. How does the eternal God, for whom one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day, that the creator and sustainer of all things enter a human womb, develop into a child and be born in a stable. How's that happen? Anybody going to teach that in your unit lesson this fall? It defies human comprehension. And so let's just observe at the outset here that the Lord has not told us everything we might want to know about the intricacies of the incarnation. But you know what he has told us? Everything that we need to know. What's he told us? That the eternal and unchangeable person of the word, the son of God, took to himself a human nature. And with that nature, a new form of existence that was both permanent and irreversible. Look at verse 15. Notice John the Baptist observes, speaking of Jesus in verse 15, he who comes after me ranks before me, he's more important, because he was before me. 
the he who was before, the son of God who existed from, from eternity past is what? The same he who comes after. Same person who began his public ministry after John the Baptist. And when the word became flesh, he didn't exchange his divine status, the word, for a human status, flesh, okay? That the person of the son added to his divine nature, a human nature, such that he remained what? Both fully God and fully man. And so when Paul says in Philippians 2 verse 7 that that Jesus Christ emptied himself, friend, he did not abandon his divine nature. He let go of the privileges, listen carefully, of existing and acting only in and through his divine nature and took up all the limitations and sorrows of existing and acting through a human nature. He didn't abandon the former, he entered the latter. And and I love how the words of the, the Chalcedonian Creed just beautifully capture not just what we read here in verse 14, but but the collective witness of scripture to the person of Christ. Christ, listen, is to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the distinction of the natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one substance, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son, and only begotten God, the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. To which I ask, what in the world does that have to do with ordinary people like you and me? Maybe you heard me say that and you're thinking, oh my word, that is exactly why I did not become a pastor. I don't, I don't have a clue what that means, let alone how that's remotely relevant to real life. But friend, I read that and I linger here because this point could not matter more. Because unless Jesus is fully God and fully man, Christianity crumbles. And you're lost in your sins. That's why it matters, okay? Think about this. Come on Sunday to be ready to think hard about God. You need to bring coffee to go for it, okay? Listen, if Jesus is not fully God, he would be unable to bridge the gap. to to relate to God as well as to us and and to overcome the the separation that our sin creates between a holy God and sinful men like us. And listen, if he were not fully God, the, the merit of his obedient life and death would suffice for no favor with God, but his own. It, It takes an infinite person, right? God and God alone to make an infinitely satisfactory atonement for the sin of the world and earn an infinitely satisfactory righteousness for all who trust in him. He has to be God. Keep it on the other hand, if Jesus is not fully man, well, what do we lose then? Well, the bidding starts with, he is not qualified to represent us. He, he can't live the life we're supposed to live for us. 
He can't die the death we're supposed to die for us. He can only represent us, as Athanasius observed, if he is one of us. Which he could not be if his divine and human natures were were mixed like red and blue (laughs) Play-Doh. Kind of making Jesus some sort of Marvel Superman. Listen, in and through his human nature, because he was a man, Jesus depended on God as a man. He became flesh. He he trusted God as a man. He, He chose again and again and again, without a single exception, to say yes to God and no to sin. And the same spirit that dwells in every believer today, guess where that spirit dwelt? In Jesus Christ, enabling him to do that. So so as a man, he knows your weakness. As a man, he leaned completely on the power of the spirit. And as a man, because of those things, he's now perfectly able to help us do the same. And so the fact that the word took to himself, a fully human nature, and yet never ceased at a single point to be the word is what gives saving worth and value to his mediation, his righteousness, his atoning blood, his resurrection, and his continual intercession for his people. If if Jesus is not God, he cannot save us. If Jesus is not man, he cannot save us. But if Jesus is fully God and fully man, he is infinitely able to save us, gloriously able to save us and and shatter the power of sin and triumph over the curse of death. And yet, look back at verse 14, Jesus came to do all that, God and man, with an even greater goal in view. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us were tabernacled among us. Because in Jesus, God came here to stay, friend. I don't know if you've ever traveled internationally. I have a handful of times, but, but one of the things that you'll experience if you do or when you do is, is the strain of cross-cultural living. Maybe you're a, an ethnic or a racial minority in our church. And you've probably experienced the challenge, worshiping, doing life with men and women who who don't share your exact cultural background or history. You don't have to travel to track with this. And yet yet none of that, friends, comes close to to the the existential chasm (laughs) between the creature and the creator but between holy God and sinful man. And yet that chasm, that that boundary, if you would, is the great divide that the word crossed for your sake. He, he, He sacrificed his privileges and prerogatives to secure you the eternal joy of knowing him to give you the gift of himself so that he could be with us and we could be with him. And so I wonder if that is who God is in your mind. Do do you think of him, friend, as a God who wants to be with you? 
The word became flesh. Yeah, because he had to do all that because it was sort of a God-man thing and that was necessary. Yes. And dwelt among us. When you, when you turn from sin to trust and obey King Jesus, that dwelling is exactly what happens within you. God makes your heart his home. But by giving you the gift of his indwelling spirit, your, your body becomes a temple of the living God. You, you want to know why we don't go worship a temple? Worship at a temple in Jerusalem right now or some other place in our country? It's because you are that temple, Christian. But I think as Christians, it's really easy to think of God as someone who's just out there somewhere whom, whom we really want to get close to, but, but he's always just kind of out of reach, waiting for us to be more holy, more loving, or, or more diligent. And in our minds, we can kind of turn Jesus into this kind of heavenly boss man, <laughs> Who's, who's mainly interested in, in the spiritual work that, that he can extract out of us. Oh, yeah, 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 sir, you know? So, so we, we might grant that we're part of his kingdom, but we think of ourselves as low-life infantry. Dime a dozen, disposable, not exactly desirable company. Friend, the, the truth of verse 14 is that the God who created the world is not interested in selfishly using you or taking advantage of you. He came because he wants to be with you. And, and if you come to Jesus in faith and repentance, trust and obedience, you'll experience that gift, intimacy, relationship with God. And, and that's what sets Christianity apart from every other religion on planet earth. No other religion offers that kind of personal, intimate relationship with God. And so Psalm 4611 speaks what is true. If you are a believer, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And so when you read verse 14, or you hear me say, the word is God become flesh. Know this, Christian. That means you are never, ever ever alone. Ever. When you're lying in your bed in the dark because you can't sleep, Jesus is with you. When you're driving to work in your car in the morning or after the service today, Jesus is with you. If, if you wind up quarantined in your home or in a hospital, separated from everybody you love because of this COVID stuff. Jesus is with you. The word became flesh that we might know God as Emmanuel. <laughs> What's that mean? God with us. And through the spirit, he has remained. Answer number two or 11. The word, God in human flesh, is also the revelation of God's glory. Remember, it's all about who is Jesus. God in human flesh, revelation of God's glory. We'll pick up the pace a bit here. Jesus didn't come to dwell among us. This is a common misunderstanding because God was lonely. Like, oh man, you know, I've just been 
milling around for eternity. And, and let me just say, after a, a few infinite millennia, I, I just am longing. I, I have this hole in my heart for human companionship. <laughs> no, okay? Jesus, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit has always been infinitely satisfied in himself. Praise God for that. But he came to dwell with us so he could what? Bring us, friends, into the infinite satisfaction that he has always had in the knowledge and enjoyment and delight of himself. That's why he came. Look at verse 14. He came to dwell with us so that we could see his glory. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. You know, if you were a Jew in Jesus' day and you were watching him and listening to him, you would have had no trouble believing the first half of verse 18. Look at John 1, 18, first half. No one has ever seen God. Jews in Jesus' day, oh yeah, exactly right. Why? Because in the history of the world, no one had ever beheld the fullness of God's glorious majesty. I mean, I mean, think about what happened when, when the prophets of old, like Isaiah or Daniel, got partial glimpses of God's majesty. Well, friend, they didn't start live streaming the event on Facebook. They certainly did not crowd in to take a selfie. They crumpled to the ground. Every cell in their body began to quake with disintegration under the weight of God's glory. And so when Jesus shows up and says in John 14, verse 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. (laughs) That didn't make any sense, right? Because Jesus, you, you're, you're so ordinary. You look perfectly ordinary. You've got a hair coming out of your nose. That doesn't make sense. I, I'm not falling down dead right now. And you're right here. How, how can you say whoever has seen you has seen the Father? Well, the second half of verse 18 gives us the answer, friend. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him No. And therein lies the reason that Jesus infinitely satisfies the souls of men. He satisfies our souls because he makes visible the invisible nature of God. God is spirit, right? And so prior to the incarnation, sinful men could not see God and live. But in Jesus, God God revealed himself. He made himself known in such a way, a tangible way, that sinful men could see him and live. He, He, as it were, he accommodated the revelation of his glory to the frailties of creaturely sight. Or as Hebrews 1 says, in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. And he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So so what do we see, friends, when we see Jesus? When we look at Jesus, the, the utterly unique, 
only son from the father kind of glory in Jesus. What do we see? Look at verse 15. We encounter a radiance of glory that is full of grace and truth. That's what we see. God's God's grace is his undeserved favor. And when Jesus makes the truth about God known to us, that's exactly what we experience. Undeserved favor. Forgiveness of sins. Blessing of restored relationship with God. And that word in verse 18, notice this that we translate as made known is the same verb from which we get the English word exegesis, (laughs) which reminds us that Jesus isn't, he's not the nice side of God or a partial expression or, or emanation of God, okay? He's the very exegesis of God. The the perfect and, and matchless revelation of all that God is. In other words, God at the very core of his being is exactly and only who he has revealed himself to be in Jesus. You can trust that. You can know that. He said that about himself. And I make this point because it's been increasingly common, certainly in our day, to hear people, including former professing Christians, to talk about all the things they're learning about God through alternative forms of spirituality. And it sounds sophisticated. And it sounds open-minded. Yeah, there's, we all have a bit of the truth. And we need to learn from lots of religious perspectives. The problem with that is that verse 18 says, there are not multiple paths to knowing God. God is not a composite of what all the religions in the world think him to be. He is, friend, only and forever what he has revealed himself to be in Jesus. You want to see God? You got to look at Jesus. We don't discover God for ourselves. God God makes himself known to us. And he's chosen to make himself known to the word reveals the glory of God through the person and work of Christ. And if you hear me say that and think, Matthew, that's offensive because that sounds exclusive. I say to you, well, then you heard me rightly. (laughs) And that that kind of exclusivity is an incredibly good thing. Because it means we can be confident and assured in our knowledge of God. You realize that. We don't have to worry that we're missing something. We don't have to wonder if in 100 years, somebody will have a vision and get a new book and discover some sort of new truth about God through a new form of spirituality. The the word is God in human flesh. And as such, he is the climactic revelation and display of the glory of God. Mission done. There is no new revelation coming. Jesus didn't come to to point to something greater than himself. He is the great one, friend. Words, the revelation of the glory of God. And lastly, he's the outpouring of God's grace. I'll be just walking through these points. It's like, Oh, man. It's like, do we really have a clue what we're saying when we sing songs? Jesus, there's no one like you. No kidding. 
No kidding. I, I wonder if you've ever walked through your favorite furniture store or maybe you're into remodeling so you like live at Lowe's and Home Depot or a sporting goods store or car lot and you have thought, man, this place is full of stuff that I would love to have but I will never be able to afford it. Or maybe you've attended a party where, where there was a table laden with all kinds of incredible desserts and it just so happened to be the week that you and your wife started a new diet. I mean, you pick other examples. I, we know what it feels like to see fullness, but not have it, right? To observe fullness, but not get it. That is not the case with Jesus Christ, friend. Okay? Jesus doesn't just possess fullness of grace or undeserved favor. He takes great joy. He takes great delight in pouring out that undeserved favor on you. Look at verse 16. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. And there's only one requirement for receiving that fullness. And that is that you abandon your arrogant attempts to earn God's blessings and favor through your performance. Because from beginning to end, friend, from from your first day to the last day, whether it's a good day or a bad day, every last drop of God's favor and and his kindness and his strength to help corporately, individually, is an expression of God's grace to us. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. And I can't earn it for you. Grace is what the gospel is all about. And so in verse 17, when John refers to the law given through Moses, think about what that accomplished. What did the Old Testament law accomplish? Well, well, it was a good gift. It wasn't void of grace or anti-grace. It revealed the holiness of God, the sinfulness of sin, and what it looks like to live in a manner that's pleasing to the Lord. And it provided... Instruction for sacrifices that were necessary for Israel to temporarily atone for her sin. But Jesus, friend, is is a gift of immeasurably more grace. Because he accomplishes once and for all what the law could only anticipate and await. And that's the salvation of mankind. Through his life and death and resurrection. Remember, God doesn't change. He was full of grace before the incarnation. He remains full of grace today. And yet his grace, his undeserved favor, has been poured out in Christ in a way that the Old Testament saints could never have imagined. But best of all, that outpouring didn't stop when Jesus ascended back into heaven. Because if you're a Christian... The grace, the undeserved favor that that we receive in Jesus Christ, don't think of it as some sort of one-time release from a dam that's kind of brimming over by the Army Corps of Engineers. You know, well, the levels get a little high, so we'll just sort of send some water downstream through the New River Gorge and people will raft and have a great time. And here comes the annual impartation of grace. No, okay? If if you come to Christ, you you stand, as it were, Christian, for your entire life under a never-ending waterfall of the grace of God that doesn't run dry. It's like in the same way that water surrounds a swimmer, 
The grace of God surrounds you, Christian. It defines you. It governs you. It's it's the most determinative force in play in your life. And I love how Murray Harris describes this simple phrase, grace upon grace, or, or grace instead of grace. Listen to these words. The reference is to replenished grace, to a rapid and perpetual succession of blessings as though there were no interval between the arrival of one blessing and the receipt of the next. That's what the grace of God in Christ is like. You you cannot overcome that by your struggle with sin, Christian. Your weakness can't exhaust that. The, The word became flesh to pour out the grace of God on you. And so I ask you, given that, why are you still trying to hide from God? Why are you still running from God? Why are you acting, especially when other Christians are around, like everything's okay? Or that you can take care of things on your own? You can't, friend. I can't. We need grace. We need Jesus. John leaves us at the end of this prologue by reminding us that Jesus is God in human flesh. He grants the gift of salvation in the presence of God. And that Jesus is the revelation of God's glory. That means he grants us the gift of the knowledge of God. And, and Jesus is the outpouring of God's grace, which means he grants us the gift of the favor of God. And so if you want to know why Reynolds Price is Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the most powerful figure the world has ever received or seen, it is because Jesus is the greatest gift that the world has ever been given. The gift of God himself. And so throughout this series from the Gospel of John, if you come up to me and say, Pastor, how do we apply that? Give me some practical action steps. What do you want me to do? Like read my Bible more, okay? Pray more, give more, put me to work. Time and time again, as we work through John's Gospel, this is what I'm going to say to you. You want to apply the Gospel of John? then give thanks for Jesus and delight in Jesus and be amazed by Jesus and stand in awe of Jesus. You realize, friend, what God wants from us more than anything else is to love him with all of our heart. That's the application. Delight in Jesus again and again and again. Let's pray. Son of God, there is no one like you. No one at all. And to say that just feels like a crazy understatement. And I pray as we sing this song and go back out into another week of life in this world, that we would remember who you are. You're with us. You're able to save. You show us what God's like and you're pouring out grace upon us. Father, I pray for those who hear all that and think, that sounds great, Williams, but that hasn't been my experience. 
pray right now that you would grant the gift of repentance and faith. That it might become our collective experience as we draw near to you, Jesus Christ, by faith for who you have revealed yourself to be. Help us to express our love for you as we sing this song in your name. Amen.